Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washed, washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who, have us in, who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Uh, let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it reminds us of how good and gracious you are and how that shapes the way in which we're to live. So tonight we pray, point us towards your son in whom we have our hope. Amen. Uh, well, let me add my welcome to that of Michael's before. My name's Jeffrey Lynn. I'm one of the staff here. Uh, I'll be taking us through our next little while in that Bible passage. So can you please make sure you have a Bible open in front of you? Page 1700. And also, if you take out the leaflet that you are given as you came in, you'll see in, uh, on the inside a pretty detailed outline of what I'm going to speak about. Uh, just to flag, I'll conclude today uh, just by giving us all a couple of minutes of quiet reflection time. You'll see at the bottom there on the right-hand side what I've learned and my response really as we come to the end of this series. Um, I know for all of us, we just tend to crash on to the next thing, uh, not just today but in the week ahead. So it'd be good for us just to have a moment of quiet reflection. So that's how we'll finish our time together in a little while. Uh, I've really loved this short series in Paul's letter to Titus. I hope you have as well. Uh, it's been both challenging and profound uh, as it paints a wonderful picture of our church family and the power of God's grace in our lives. And actually this week's finale returns to that ongoing theme of God's goodness that we have seen in so many ways. Uh, I do want to start, however, by, you'll see at the top left of your handout, with the memory verse challenge that I put before you last week. I don't know how anyone here has gone in terms of trying to memorise it. 
eyes down. Uh, a number of you actually have come and said you've been trying to do it. Look, I tried seven, uh, four times last week to say it publicly and got it wrong every time. So I'm going to get it right now. Um, if you have it in front of you, you can follow along if you've not memorised it. It's a great summary of everything that this letter has been about. So Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Yeah, I got it right for once. Thank you, thank you. Man, it's hard. Look, um, can I encourage you, memory verses are there so that they will come to mind later. It's not too late to pick it up and to try and commit it to memory. Well, have a look there. Point one, be ready to do whatever is good. Uh, you recall that last week in chapter two, uh, Paul spent considerable time describing how particular groups in our church family are to relate to each other. Uh, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Chapter 3 starts with how all of us are to relate to the world around us. And particularly, you'll notice there in verse 1, to the governing authorities. Now, I do want to say that this is the perfect passage after yesterday's federal election. And for the record, I promise you, I didn't line this up in advance. Okay? I didn't know when the election was going to be called when we planned the preaching program. Uh, just as actually we didn't plan for last week, with Commitment Sunday and its wonderful emphasis on welcome to the family and how we are saved by grace. Didn't plan that either. I suppose it's something about how Christians don't really believe in coincidence after all doing. Well, have a look at me at verses 1 and 2. Let's see what Paul has to say. Verse 1, chapter 3, Titus, page 1700. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Uh, those first two instructions that Paul gives, they set a pretty high bar, don't they? Be subject to rulers and authorities, be obedient to them. That's a pretty high bar, especially when, if I can put it this way, your response today to the election yesterday might be one of anger or maybe just resigned apathy. And yet, as we saw last week, as Paul addressed wives and husbands, even slaves and masters, even though the bar was high, there was also a great example for us to imitate and to take heart from. You see, this is the way that Jesus so willingly subjects himself to his Father in heaven. That means that this kind of self-sacrificial love must be good even if hard in practice. Well, what does it look like in practice? Uh, actually, the next four instructions there in Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, show, I think, what these initial instructions look like. Uh, verse 1, be ready to do whatever is good. Slander no one. Be peaceable and considerate. Always be gentle toward everyone. Literally, always show gentleness to all people. Once again, our world is not always like that, particularly, if I can say it this way, during election campaigns. 
But this is what we are to be ready for. In fact, this is what we are to be like all of the time. So in terms of application, you'll see that on your handout. I suppose today I just want to ask, is this what you are ready for? Are you ready to do whatever is good? What are you ready for? What would others say that you are ready for, that you are planning for, that you are preparing for with the time that you have? Uh, I could be a little bit trivial and silly at this point, I suppose. I could talk about doomsday preppers and the things that they do to get ready for the apparent end of the world. But much more seriously, what are you ready for? What are you preparing for? Is it a new career move? Is it an investment opportunity about to be realised? Is it a new relationship you're hoping will begin? In Titus chapter 3, we are urged to be a people who are to be ready to do whatever is good. And it carries the sense, I think, of being prepared, of being deliberate, of being intentional. And in fact, it's the natural consequence of what Paul has just said back in our memory verse, in 2 verse 14. You see, back in 2.14, we were told that Christ is purifying for himself a people that are eager to do what is good. If you're eager to do what is good, you'll aim to be ready to do whatever is good. Well, that's the first idea. Second idea in this passage, point two, be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Uh, verses three through eight. Uh, this section actually comes in three main parts. Firstly, what we were like in verse three. Uh, secondly, what God has done for us in verses four and five. And then thirdly, how we live in response, verses five through seven. And you'll see each of those there listed on your outline. So firstly, verse three, what we were like. Pick it up, Titus three, verse three with me. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Here is a pretty bleak picture of what we were like. Now, we're familiar with the Bible's view of humanity and its honesty about how our sin corrupts everything. Yet what I think stands out here in verse 3 is how very inclusive verse 3 is. It says all of us were like that. Notice how it begins there in verse 3? At one time, we too were like that. It is, I think, a stark reminder that in God's family, we always welcome everyone and we look down on no one because we ourselves are no better. And the thing is that since our sin affects everyone in the family, it affects not just ourselves, but others. So, verse 3, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Because our sin affects not just us, but others, our only hope lies, once again, back in 2.14, in our memory verse. Our only hope lies in the fact that Jesus says he is purifying a people for himself who are eager to do what is good. I think that's probably why Paul moves so quickly to the wonderful news of what God has done for us. What, 
2.11 through 14 had called God offering salvation to all people to redeem us from all wickedness. Now pick it up in verse 4. Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Now see again how verse 4 starts so emphatically. When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, before verse 5 then gives the first of two answers to the big question that lies behind all of this, why would God bother? Why does God do this? Well, the first answer comes there in verse 5. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. This is the most extraordinary relief. I say that because... If we were only saved because of the righteous things we'd done, it would mean that, in effect, God weighs our lives using like a set of scales. On one side, he puts all the good things that we had done, and on the other, all our sins that we had committed. And the problem, of course, is that if that's how God views us, we're in a whole lot of trouble. Because no matter how many righteous things we had done, and some people do do a lot, they could never outweigh our failings. That's the whole point of verse 3. And yet, thankfully, God doesn't relate to us because of how we live. He relates to us because of his mercy. And in saying that, we're being told, in saving us because of his mercy, he doesn't measure us with a set of divine judgment scales. Rather, God simply holds out his hand to us in kindness and love. That's the very free gift of grace. Now, verses 5 through 7 then go on to give a second answer as to why God saves us. And at this point, Paul shows us how we're to live in response. Pick it up in verse 5 again, halfway through. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Uh, we saw this last week. God doesn't just save us from our sins. He also saves us for good works. And you see the same idea here, but with a slightly different image. Uh, the image there from verse 5, it's not that he saved us through washing alone. Washing would imply baptism of things being cleansed. Actually, the image is he saved us through the washing of rebirth, literally being born again, of renewal by the Holy Spirit, literally being made new. Uh, both of which say more than just God saved us from something, he has saved us for something. To start again, for a fresh start. Paul, I think, is offering one of those really wonderful before and after images. Uh, you know how these work. Uh, think, for example, of, um, not that I watch them, of a reality TV show. You know, one that's built around the concept of a makeover, of a house, maybe of a person. You see the before and you see the after. And that's exactly what's on view for us here in Titus 3. What makes it so wonderful is that, well, when we stumble, 
and all of us do, it's so reassuring to hear that this is why God has saved us, that we might be reborn and renewed. It's a reminder that God hasn't given up on us. That's the reason why I think at the end of verse 7 we're called by the really lovely but quite unusual phrase. Did you notice it there? Verse 7. It talks about us being heirs having the hope of eternal life. Heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now, I say it's a lovely but unusual phrase because, to be honest, usually the words heir and hope don't go together. Heir, of course, implies there's been a death. And yet, of course, the image that Paul is capturing is that here... Jesus is the one who has died, who gave himself for us, 2 verse 14. And that's what gives us, the unexpected recipients, the hope to not give up. Once again, God saves us from our sins, but he also saves us for eternal life. Now at this point, I just want to ask a question, which again, I've printed near the bottom of your handout there on the left-hand side. Here's the question. Why do you think that Paul largely repeats himself in 3, 3 verse 7 compared to the memory verse from 2, 11 verse 14? Uh, I presume you noticed that, right? They felt very similar, didn't they? 2, 11 through 14 and what he talked about and now 3, 3 verse 7. They feel like they're covering the same things, what we're like and then what God has done for us and what that's for. So why do you think Paul repeats himself? Well, I don't really know, of course. I suspect it's because... What he's saying is so important, and yet it's so easy to forget. That repetition is the thing that helps it stick. Maybe what Paul is doing is reminding us that when we do fail to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, when we do fail to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives, particularly when we stumble despite our vow to do better, to show more self-control. At that moment, if it's only up to us, we will come to loathe ourselves or get angry at ourselves for our failures or we'll just give up in despair. Why bother? Isn't that your experience? As you struggle over the years to defeat that besetting sin? And yet... That's why 3, 3 verse 7 is such a comfort. It's saying that God hasn't given up on us, even if we're tempted to do so. He has saved us from our sins, but he is also saving us for eternal life, which means he's not done with us yet. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a great song that in many ways summarizes this exact idea. I thought I'd just read you a few of the lyrics from the second verse. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For my, by my side, the Saviour, he will stay. I labour on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Well, verse 8 will draw this whole section to a close. Uh, Pick it up with me in verse 8 of Titus chapter 3. 
Uh, verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Uh, when Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, he's really saying, sit up, you know, pay attention. Because what he's going to do is return to that main theme of goodness that we've seen throughout this whole letter. If we have trusted in God, we will be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. Uh, once again, what God is like, what he has done for us, what he promises he'll still do in the future, that's what shapes how we live right now in the present. It's a reminder of what we saw in the very opening verse of the entire letter. Chapter 1, verse 1, there on your handout, is that knowledge of the truth is what leads to godliness. And Paul says there in verse 8, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Um, actually, when he says excellent there, the word is literally good. So, just as I had to admit last week, turns out there's not nine, there's not ten, but there's eleven occurrences of the word good in the three chapters of Titus. Here's another one, excellent. Um, reminding us once again of God's goodness to us and how that changes everything. Well, let me just make a brief comment about application. You'll see on the right-hand side of your handout there. I wonder if you want to be known as someone who is, verse 8, careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Now, I draw your attention to it because Paul doesn't say not merely hopes to be devoted to doing what is good, but someone who is careful to devote themselves. That's so much more active and positive. It's not passive. It's saying we do have a part to play in all this. Well, if that's the kind of person you want to be, someone who is careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, then, of course, the question is how? Well, to pick up on the same idea we've been tracing throughout. If you are eager to do what is good, 2 verse 14, and if you're ready to do whatever is good, 3 verse 1, you will be careful to devote yourself to doing what is good, Chapter 3, verse 8. Now, the phrase, be careful, it, it carries a sense of concentrating on or being concerned about or focused on because devotion doesn't come easily. Uh, to put it this way, no one wakes up one morning to discover that they're devoted to something different. Rather, devotion takes time and it's intentional. Dare I say, eager. And being careful to be devoted requires awareness, dare I say, being ready. Because devotion is never accidental. Well, you can see on your hand up there, point three, at this point in verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul goes back and reminds us of the false teachers who are unfit for doing anything good. Uh, we met them back in chapter 1 in verses 10 through 16. Uh, I suppose the only question is why Paul chooses to return to them one last time. Um, I suppose they must be a very great threat to the churches in Crete. Uh, but for the sake of time tonight, I'm not actually going to rehash what we saw back in talk two because I really don't want to neglect Paul's final greetings at the end of the letter. This is what we normally do when it comes to letters. We ignore the start, we ignore the end, and we just focus on the main stuff in the middle. Uh, it feels like there's just a shopping list of greetings. But actually, I think what they are are very practical examples of what it means to be a people who are eager, ready, prepared, devoted to doing what is good. And I say that partly because 
six of the 11 occurrences of good in Titus, they had to do with good works or doing good, as the table shows you there. So I think it's right for us to finish with the big idea. It is a lovely image of family that's personal and intimate and lovely. So come with you then, lastly, point four, learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Verses 12 through 15. And look at verse 12. Verse 12. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at, Nicop- sorry, at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. And Paul wants Titus to come and join him. And, you know, it, it feels sort of poignant, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know anything about Nicopolis. I've never been there, probably never will be. But I feel like winter there must be cold. And this feels like the right gift of warm company. Uh, He's only to do that, of course, after verse 13. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Uh, Paul urges Titus to look after these two characters, Zenos and Apollos, and again, we don't know a lot much about them. Look at what he's to do. Verse 13. See that they have everything they need. So they have everything they need. It's so expansive, isn't it? It's like saying to Titus, blank check, carte blanche, to literally ensure they don't lack for anything. Well, isn't that a lovely description of what doing what is good looks like in practice? And of course, the thing is that as Titus does that, he'll be setting examples for all the others to follow. I look at verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Uh, This whole letter, in fact, from start to finish, has all been about teaching and leading by example in relationship. It's the same to the very end. Uh, Just a couple of comments about uh, what Paul says our people are to learn. Uh, They are to learn to provide for urgent needs provide for urgent needs, that um, I think carries the sense of everything necessary, not just what's imminent. Uh, Because doing whatever is good, it's not time limited, or only when you have available capacity. And conversely, our people are not to live unproductive lives. Uh, That, I think, warns of the awful tragedy of spending your life producing stuff that benefits no one but you that you can't take with you anyway. But what's really interesting about verse 15 is that once again you see that phrase, devote themselves to doing what is good. Although this time, did you notice what Paul says? It wasn't that we be careful to do, devote ourselves to doing what is good. Rather, verse, 15, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Learn to devote themselves to doing what is good because, once again, as we've been saying, doing what is good takes effort, takes instruction, it takes practice. It doesn't always come easily. And that, I think, is the final step in what Paul is laying out for us for how we can be a people who are his, Christ's very own. I've laid it there out on your handout for you to see. If we are eager to do what is good, we'll be ready to do what is good. So be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good and then we will learn to devote ourselves to doing what is good. You learn devotion. You don't just feel devotion because we will never be devoted until we start.
And last of all, then, verse 15. Verse 15. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, I must say that this last verse really does feel like a, a bit of a, oh, you know, say hi to everyone, and everyone says hi back. But actually, it's no empty platitude. Rather, it's actually one last expression of the home found in a Christian family. I say that because when he says in verse 15, grace be with you all, well, that's unusual, isn't it? Because if you remember right back to chapter 1, this was a letter from Paul to Titus and not actually to anybody else. I presume what actually Paul knows is that his letter would be read in churches in every town throughout Crete. And so he wants everyone to know of the grace of God. Uh, can I say, uh, this, with this I'll conclude, um, it's with that same principle in mind that we keep church planting here at Trinity so that we might see a church in every suburb throughout our city. Actually, that's one of the reasons why Wendy and I moved here from New South Wales to Adelaide some 18 years ago. I was finishing up in Bible college at the time. We'd grown up in Sydney, lived all our life there, and I was expecting to start in ministry in Sydney when we concluded. But actually, um, when it came time to look for a job, there was one going here, and it became pretty apparent to us as we thought about Sydney and Adelaide in comparison. Uh, Sydney is by no means a Christian city, right? I'm not saying that. But in every suburb in, city, in Sydney, there is a good Bible-teaching church that faithfully proclaims the gospel week in, week out. And if you don't like the brand, just go to the next suburb and you'll find one more to your taste. That's not the case throughout our country, let alone throughout the world. It's one of the reasons why we came here. It seems to me that wouldn't it be wonderful if in every suburb throughout our city there was a church family ready to proclaim the grace of God to us and how that is very good.